This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this final episode of Once Upon a Crime for 2019. As promised, I've got a special episode to end this year, and it's special for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a case that I know many of you are interested in and have asked if I'll cover it over the years, but I've kind of held off because a lot has been written and said and documented about this case, and if I was going to cover it, I wanted to find a way to do so from a little bit of a different perspective. So the second reason this is a special episode is because I have a very special guest to help me do just that. With me today to discuss the John Bonet Ramsey case is the one and only Jack Luna. Hey, Jack. Hey. Hi, Esther. So Jack is the creator and host of the podcast Dark Topic, and now his new podcast, Crime Machine, and I'm a big fan of both of them. And we'll tell you guys a little bit more about Crime Machine at the end of the episode, because if you haven't heard it yet, I know you're going to be a fan too. So from conversations you and I have had, Jack, I know that you have an interest in this case as well. So is there something particular about this case that interested you when you started thinking about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, for uh, so Crime Machine, I do a podcast that um, focuses in on just a particular moment in the crime itself. And what I mean, I've always been interested in this case. Who who isn't? Um, it's a real who done it. And so I what I what I was focused on was just um, the aspect of how this family could wake up, see that the daughter's missing, and call all their friends over for brunch. You know, like everybody's there kind of stomped around the crime scene. So that's, that's what attracted me uh, to this for crime machine um, is that particular scene. Yeah. Because there are so many parts and pieces of this case and that really they do, they stick with you. And sometimes thinking about it or reading about it over the years, there's other parts of this case that kind of stand out to me. Like I'll start thinking about, you know, one aspect or another. And I really start debating it in my mind. So there's a whole bunch of books that I read about this case, trying to figure out all those parts and pieces. So there's quite a bit to unpack here. But I think we both also like to look at the psychology and or the motivations of a crime. At least that's what I get from um, the way you cover them on your podcast. So I'm really, I really feel like we're kind of doing a character study of the criminals that we cover in a way. I totally agree. No, I absolutely I would agree. But the problem here is that we don't know who did it. So so now we're doing a character study on on like this whole family. You know, who if someone did it inside the house, was it John? Was it Burke? Was it Patsy? Were they all in it together? And then you have on the outside a whole bunch of people that are all over my whiteboard right now. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's, yeah. No, I definitely go from that angle and I know from listening to your podcast for a long time that uh that you do too. So but yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. That the, the reason this case is different is because it is technically still an unsolved case. So like mm. you said, if we're going to cover it as doing a character study of, well, basically doing a character study of the entire crime, focusing yeah. on some particularly interesting aspects of the crime scene, the suspects, the theories of the case, we're not going to do, so listeners know that we're not going to do an in-depth coverage of the case point by point, because there are many other podcast episodes, there's documentaries, there's books, et cetera that our listeners have probably already heard, they've probably already seen those. But just to get us started, I'll provide a quick summary, and then we'll begin the analysis. So we'll be starting to take those pieces apart and, and take a look at them, kind of turn them over and see what we find. 
Okay, so on December 26, 1996, six-year-old JonBenet Ramsey was discovered missing from her bedroom in Boulder, Colorado. A two-and-a-half-page ransom note was found inside the home by her mother, Patsy. Kidnappers demanded $118,000, the same amount her father, John Ramsey, had received as his annual bonus from his position as president of Access Graphics Corporation. The kidnappers identified themselves as belonging to a, quote, small foreign faction, unquote, and signed the ransom note SBTC. The meaning behind this acronym is still unknown. Although the letter specified that John Ramsey not call the authorities but wait for instructions, Patsy Ramsey called 911 at 5.52 a.m. and reported the kidnapping of her daughter. Boulder police officers and then detectives arrived at the Ramsey home located at 755 15th Street. Patsy Ramsey also called friends and neighbors asking them to come over. Although John Bonet had reportedly been abducted from their home, only her bedroom was cordoned off. The rest of the house was not treated as a crime scene, and many officers, friends, family, and detectives came in and out of the house, interfering with crucial evidence. The first officers that arrived made a cursory canvas of the home, but did not find an obvious point of forced entry or exit by the kidnappers. John Ramsey and the police waited for the kidnappers' instructions, but none came. At 1 p.m., Detective Linda Arndt asked John Ramsey to make a search of the house from top to bottom to determine if he saw anything out of place. Ramsey, along with a family friend, Fleet White, started his search beginning in the basement. Opening up one of the doors to a separate room in the basement that police had not entered, Ramsey found the body of John Bonet. She had duct tape over her mouth and a nylon cord wrapped around her wrists and neck. John Ramsey moved the body, carrying it upstairs and laying it under the Christmas tree. An autopsy would determine that John Bonet had been strangled and had also suffered a skull fracture. A garrote made from a piece of nylon cord in which a broken paintbrush was tied to was used to strangle the child. So we're going to start, I think, with this crime scene, um, because that, I think, is something that you brought up already as well. That's one of the first things, I think, that leads this case to become so convoluted and to still be technically unsolved is really this botched investigation. So that whole scene of calling people over to the house after the 911 call is made, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but what did you make of that? Because you said that was one of the things that stood out to you is just these people that start arriving at the house soon after they discover John Bonet missing. Well, it came across to me as something that could seem like a normal reaction from the outside, but we're dealing with a really intelligent guy here in uh, John Ramsey. And in my opinion, if it had, like if I was him and my daughter's missing, I only want the police there. You know, I, I only want the investigators there. I want this place to be locked down. I want, you know, he knows about crime scenes and crime scene analysis. This is 1996. There's, there's TV shows out about this stuff at this point. Um, so it just seemed really odd to me that he would invite all these people over to his house. It, to be honest with you, it seemed like a way to muck up the crime scene, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about the ransom letter um, in a little bit more detail in a minute. But one of the things that it does say is, in, in no uncertain terms, is do not call anybody. It gives specific threats about calling people. It basically tells them, you know, you're going to be getting instructions and how you can arrange to get your daughter back and here's what you need to do and we're going to be calling you. And then it says, any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. 
And then says, speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police or FBI, will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If money in, in any way is marked or tampered with, she dies. So it's very threatening about calling anybody. Maybe that's, I don't know, I was thinking about that too. Is that something that maybe right away you'd say, I, we need help and you're going to call, not thinking about that. But I don't know. How do you think you would react to something like that? But to be honest with you, if they said they're going to be calling between 9 and 10 and my little girl's missing, I'm going to wait till between 9 and 10. Yeah. I'm going to wait. Me, me personally, I'm going to wait and I'm going to see what they have to say. Um, they're, they sound pretty serious. Yeah. And um, I got the money. You know, they asked for 118 grand. I just got that as a Christmas bonus. Uh, You know, so no problem. We'll get you that and get me my little girl back. And then if I don't get a phone call between nine and ten, then we're calling the cops. Right. But instead, he's inviting over Fleet White for I don't know bacon and eggs, right? Yeah. 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 People start coming. Not just a couple of people, like a ton of people. So if anybody's watching yeah. this house, you know, the first thing they're seeing is like an army of people coming into the house. Yeah. And that's going to be the end of that option, I think, if that was actually true. I guess we should talk about that ransom note, I guess. Let's talk about it. Sure. Yeah. sure. You know what? I also, I'd like, to say, I'd like to say, like, right away, I'm jumping all over the Ramsey family, right? But I mean, like, you try, you try to stay um, objective about it. But it's it's difficult, especially when you ask me a question like that. That's my true answer. So, you know, obviously, I'm a little suspicious about, and so, so are a lot of people about the Ramseys. I'm not the only one. Right. Um, but, but yeah, this, this letter, this two-and-a-half-page letter. To me, immediately, and also to the detectives, because this is what they said right away, this is why they started looking at the family right away, is because this ransom letter seemed like a complete red herring. <laughs> this in no way is the way a kidnapper would behave. First of all, this letter is way too long. Usually it's something, you know, they brought in FBI and FBI basically said, okay, this is the way a ransom letter looks. Says we have your, you know, so-and-so, this is how much we want and await instructions. Or it'll give you the instruction, you know, immediately. And it's, you know, a paragraph, if that. This is, you you know, three pages long. It's handwritten and it has a lot of, a lot of threats against uh, John Ramsey. People probably know this ransom letter, but here's the beginning of it. It says, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. Who gives a shit who they are? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. We have your kid I and know. we want money. It's that's, yeah. yeah. We respect your business, yeah. but not the country it serves. So now they're flattering the guy that they just took his kid. Yeah, I <laughs> uh, know, and you know, you know what's what's crazy? What's crazy too is that like they're acting like they're this big, uh, you know, I don't know what they are, this underground group that's coming to like terrorize him, and they only ask for 118 grand. Yeah. Also, also, they they don't they don't, and he's a millionaire, a multimillionaire, and and also a group, a, an organized group like this would probably write the letter before beforehand. Right. Like they wouldn't write it in the house. Right. Yeah, and that's so, the other big, huge clue about this this letter is that they discover that it was written with the pad that um, belonged to Patsy Ramsey that was in the kitchen near the phone, and also a pen that was found in the house that was, again, by the phone. So both of the materials used to leave this ransom letter were from materials found in the house. Like you said, that doesn't mm-hmm. have... And plus the fact that if you're going to write it in the house... 
and it's three pages long. How long did that take you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, did you see the uh, documentary it was with Jim Clemente? Uh, yes. Is it Jim Clemente? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they they did a, they did a test where they all they all started to write it down. It took them fifteen to twenty minutes between yeah. the between the group. It took them plus plus there was a couple of practice pieces, right? There was like yes. a, one that had been written and then ripped out and thrown out. Yes. So. Yeah, they said that this looked like it was probably the the third edition of this letter that, you know, finally made it. Um, Yeah, there was two other practices. So, I mean, you're you're talking maybe a half an hour to uh, probably more because they said, you know, this is copying the letter. It took that long, not trying to think of what to write and then writing it, you know. So it could, you know, it took up to 45 minutes. You're going to spend 45 minutes while you have a, you know, a kid that you're trying to keep under control or whatever. So that right there is the Mm. biggest problem in this entire case, I think. Um, Sure. And and I'll say that, I'll I'll say that, say say it was um, an intruder from the outside. I mean, they could, they could write something screwy like that to try to, to try to mess with who it was that actually did it as well. Right. It wouldn't just be the Ramses who would, think think that way right um but i would say definitely a foreign faction whatever the hell it is that definitely is not those aren't the people who took her those aren't the people who who did what what happened to uh to jean benet obviously right um over overall again you you would write that letter first if if in my opinion if it was an intruder from the outside they would have that letter prepared already you don't want to waste any time in that house especially when you're kidnapping a little girl and their whole family's home right and you're coming into the house. It's not like, you know, you caught her when she was outside riding her bike, which she was doing the day before. She was riding around on her bike the day before. Wouldn't that have been a perfect time to, you know, grab her, not having to go in the house and somehow not wake anybody up and take her out and all of that. It just kind of defies logic, the whole entire scenario. Um, yeah, I don't get a good feeling about it at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so then the police come. They do a search of the house. They didn't see anything like somebody had broken in or anything like that. This is a big house, right? You, we were talking about this before, yeah. and you were you were kind of describing what it was, what it was like, or how big this house was. It's huge, yeah, it's huge, way bigger than I thought from from what I'd heard in the past. Because I did a little tour, uh, someone on YouTube, I don't know, they when the house was being sold again or something, did it did a tour of it. It is, it's enormous. I think it's four stories. Uh, John Bonet's bedroom had her own balcony. Um, so, you know, again, if there was an intruder, there would have been multiple entry points and we'll get into that later, I'm sure. But also if something were to happen in the house, um, far enough away from you, you wouldn't be able to hear what was going on if there was a struggle or whatever. Um, so, you know, it's it's a big house. Yeah. It's a huge house. Yeah. And the parents are actually on the top floor. So apparently Mm -hmm. it used to be like an attic space and they completely remodeled the top floor to make it like the whole top floor was like the master suite. So the parents were on a floor all by themselves. The floor below, I believe, was where the kids were. Then the third, the the bottom, the floor below that was like the main floor where the kitchen was. And then there was another floor, which was the basement, which was a huge yeah. basement. It wasn't like, you know, you walk in and there's like a big basement, you know, like you would think, but it's like a whole nother floor. There's like, you know, rooms and closets and doors. And so that was a whole yeah. other area to, you know, search. And of course, it wasn't it wasn't much light down there because it was a basement. Um, there was some light bulbs in some of the rooms, but that was one of the reasons they said that they didn't find her at first was because the police didn't go. It was kind of like a maze, like they had to go through all of these doors, and there was doors behind doors, and I don't know. It just seemed, 
you know, kind yeah. of like amazed. Yeah, I feel like from the tour that I saw, because I was always kind of hard on the hard on the police not being able to find her immediately if she was where where they ended up finding her. Uh, but the tour I saw, I mean, like you said, it is it is like a maze. And the spot where she's eventually found it is definitely the most difficult spot in the house to find. It is tucked away. So. And that was that was one of the things that I had seen recently where somebody was saying, you had to know this house to find that spot to put her in. You know, at least that was the, their theory, where you kind of had to know because there was so many, that was a difficult spot to find. It wasn't it wasn't a you know a clear access to to go in or out or whatever, and yeah, I and mean, then there's still the, no. the idea of where did they come in and where did they go out, and there's you know they had some evidence around that, but it's still debated whether or not a person actually went in and out that basement window because I don't know if there was any doors open. There's there's different accounts that there was a door open, there wasn't a door open in the house, so I don't think there's anything definitive. Again, they didn't secure it, so. Um, we don't have that information. Well, we do have we do have the broken room and the broken window in the back room. I don't know if I'm hopping ahead on you, but yeah, broken no, room, broken window in the back room, right? Uh, yeah. So that would be the only real spot that looked like it had uh, something had gone down there. But yeah, there was also a cob- there was a cobweb in the corner. Th- that's the thing is f- trying to figure out where the the entry point was, and that was the, the first idea was okay. There was a broken window down there in that basement room, and um, so maybe that was it. But there was also um, some testimonies taken later, and the housekeeper said that that had been broken earlier. And actually, John said that he had broken it because he forgot his keys, and sometimes that's how he got in once or twice was through that window. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yes, I saw that too. There's a kind of a cage above it, and you, you lift it up. Um, one of the uh, and well, the investigators of this case, they brought him out of retirement, Lou Smith. Oh yeah, is that his name? Yeah, mm-hmm. Lou, Lou Smith. He looks like he he rode a, rode a horse instead of a <laughs> cop car around. <laughs> he was he really believed that played by Sam Elliott somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know about Lou Smith, but he he was a big believer in the intruder deal and uh he thought that they probably came into that window but I, I believe it was previously broken window and also from that um that documentary with jim clemente in it the more recent one uh the, and through the pictures the crime scene photos you see that there's a cobweb mm-hmm. in the corner of that window and uh when old lou smith comes flying through it definitely gets wiped out by your old buttocks there if you uh pretty much anybody it's a small spot right a small spot to come through so yeah. I don't think anybody came into that window personally. Right. Yeah. And then think about it. You're trying to get a kid out of a are you trying to get the kid out of the house through the window? Because that's gonna be almost impossible. It seemed like you just go out the back. I don't know. Very odd. Well, so. I'll tell you, I mean, if I killed my daughter, excuse me, but I mean if I did, I don't have a daughter, but you know, just hypothetically. And and that's where she was placed, and there's a suitcase sitting there as well. My idea might be to stuff her into the suitcase later and then shove her up to the window and then pick her up and drag her up to the car. Mm, I never um, thought about that. There is another reason personal. for that suitcase. It wasn't just a stepping stool, you're saying. They also, also, if it happened inside the house like that by the family, let's say, mm-hmm. they might not be thinking clearly in the first place, right? It looked okay. like if that was the case, some plan was in place to use that suitcase. Not the best plan, but in a pinch, mm-hmm. it might work. So there is there is some other, and we'll circle back around to um, you know it being an inside job because there's some other things that we're gonna go to you know some other points on this case, but 
there's also the intruder theory. You know, we know this. Um, so we got to talk about that as well. So some of the reasons why people uh, made the theory that this was an outside job, not an inside job, was the first theory was kind of like a stranger danger theory. So because uh, John Benet Ramsey, since, gosh, I think she was like four or something, had been um, competing in these child beauty pageants. And, um, you know, this is something everybody's seen, if they've seen anything about this case, they've seen pictures and videos of John Bonet dressed up in outfits with a head full of hairspray, big, you know, big hairdos and makeup, and dr- sometimes dressed like a little mini adult, sometimes dressed in a really right. cute little, you know, cowgirl outfit. There were these pageants. I don't know anything about these pageants. I mean, I'm sure they have them here in California, but I don't think they're a big deal. I think they're a bigger deal in the South um, and some other places yeah. in the U.S. I don't know exactly where. <laughs> But no, uh, I've never seen one. So I, I can I couldn't tell you. I've never been to one myself. Uh, they, they're creepy, though, in my opinion. I've I've seen some TV shows uh, with my uh, fiance mm-hmm. that, that we got into for some reason for a little while. But overall, pretty creepy. Very short skirts, like you said, dressed as an adult, and um, for definitely a pedophile's uh, a trigger. Yeah. So yeah. It was one. So that was one of the things I think right away that became that another reason why I think this became such a big deal, um, you know, on the news and was because of these pictures of her were just, I think, especially people who weren't raised in areas where that was, you know, something, <laughs> something that was going yeah. along with the culture that we were kind of horrified by this. Like, what the heck is going on with the kid? You know, why are they dressing her like this? What is, what is this? And so that became yeah. a talking point like, oh, well, what do you expect? You know, you dress up this kid with makeup and then a, and, you know, a pedophile is going to snatch her. I mean, that was the talking point anyway. Right. Um, so this yeah. is, that was one of the first theories was that some, you know, pedophile became obsessed with this child beauty queen and wanted to, uh, you know, assault her, rape her, abduct her, you know, all three. That kind of made sense as far as an outside thing. But then that's not what the ransom note said had nothing to do with right. that. It, it had to do with getting money from John and they didn't like John. That yeah. kind of blew that theory right out of the water if you're going to go with the outside theory and then the ransom note was real. There's so many moving parts in this. That's why it makes it so complicated to even, yeah. even discuss. I have a couple. I mean, if you if you want me to, to go intruder possible guys from the outside that it could have been, and I'll say, I'll say again, I mean, I was I was right with you before. Like, I kind of uh, there's there's no way that some of these people did it because it doesn't go anywhere along with the the ransom note. But again, I mean, if I was, I don't know why I keep on using myself. I'm make myself seem like a super creep. My voice is so creepy too. Hey, if I <laughs> killed my daughter, if I was gonna, you know, kidnap John Benet Ramsey, uh, if I know I was gonna write a ransom note. I would fabricate it. And it obviously is fabricated. Whoever did it fabricated it, right? It sounds like out of a movie. Right. So that's even just say one of these characters managed to get into the house and did this thing from a trigger from the outside. We can we can just um make that make sense by saying that they lied about who they are, obviously. And would you be ready for a couple of them? Do you want me to yeah. name them now or do you want yeah. to no, wait? Sure. Okay. Okay, so you got um, – I'll, I'll get Lou Smith's guy out of the way quick. That's the, the guy who was riding the horse. 
and sliding in through the back window. He's uh, he he liked this uh, Gary Oliva, who was uh, excuse my my accent there. He was a pedophile in the area. Um, there was a lot of pedophiles in the area. There was a lot of sex offenders. I believe there was around just over thirty. You know when oh. you can look it up on the on the internet, you see like uh, all those dots pop up, like right. You know, uh, like a virus in your neighborhood. There was there was quite a few around, and this guy was one of them. Um, he was at the vigil that the candlelight vigil that happened after uh, Jean had passed away mm-hmm. or been murdered. Um, he had called a friend on the 26th and said that he had done something horrible. And when he eventually did pass away, I'm not sure when that was, there was a poem found in his belongings called Ode to Jean Benet. And mm-hmm. there was a photo, a photo of Jean Benet in his belongings as well. So there's one. Uh, and and that Lou Smith really really liked this. Like he thought that this was the guy. It seems that in the pedophile community, and I, I hesitate to say this, but um, say men men have like the Rock, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, women have I don't know. I, I, I'm just gonna throw in like Jennifer Aniston or something like that. Drag queens share, right? Mm-hmm. Pedophiles have John Benet Ramsey. Mm. John Ramp is like the the ultimate, in my opinion, from what I've seen and from you know what I've what I've gone through with my other podcasts and things like that. John Bonet comes up a lot as like like trophy in the minds of a lot of pedophiles, oh. and that was the case with Gary Oliva. So he was one that they because I guess they looked at him because he was he was local to that area. Correct? Of course. Okay. Yes, and, and also that he had shown up at the vigil, right? And, oh, right. Um, and he seemed to have some kind of obsession with her as well. There's more. I mean, there's there's Santa Claus. So Bill McReynolds, he was hired as the Santa Claus for the for the Ramsey family, 1995, 1996, um, and he was smitten by Jean Benet Ramsey. She gave him some gold glitter both times that he came. It was like magic glitter. She she called it or something. And he kept that. Um, the thing with Bill McReynolds is that. He apparently gave her a note saying that she would receive a gift the day after Christmas. And Jean Benet shared with her friend, her name is Barb, I believe, that she she was looking forward to this gift she would be getting after Christmas from her her uh, special Santa. Um, Bill McReynolds, his daughter was kidnapped on the same day, December 26 of 1974, and along with a friend. And nothing happened to his daughter. Her, the friend was sexually uh, molested, and the daughter witnessed this. But that's odd. Wow. Um, Bill Bill's wife wrote a script, like a screenplay or a story or something like that, that that uh, featured a child being murdered, raped, and left in a basement. And Bill McReynolds had an odd fascination with with Jean Benet right up to his death in 2002. In fact, when he was cremated, he requested that the gold glitter that Jean Benet gave him. He mixed him with his ashes. What? Oh my God! You're totally blowing my mind. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. Yeah, it's so. Oh, cool. We're we're cracking you... the case today, Esther Lindau. No. <laughs> so okay, but let me ask you this. Okay, so for the last two people that you talked about, the the guy that was the the sex offender or whatever he was, and then uh, Bill McReynolds, Gary and Bill. Okay, Gary and Bill. Yeah. So did they have alibis? Did they check these guys out? Did they, you know? Ruled them out. Or yeah. Not? Well, here, here, yes. So the DNA evidence ruled them both out, from from what I could tell. And this DNA evidence, now we know, is just touch DNA evidence, right? Right. Um, which is like it could have happened. It could be the DNA of a person in Malaysia who made her underwear. Right. For all we know. 
but yes, that's my that's that's my understanding is that they they got let off on uh, their DNA okay. not matching what was found on her her clothing. Hmm. Okay. So there's another one. Another one, my, Michael Helgoth. Uh, or Helgoth? That sounds, sounds horrible. Uh, that's a horrible last name, if that's correct. H-E-L-G-O-T-H. Helgoth, okay. He worked odd jobs in the area, um, had a history of violence, sexual abuse. Um, he was 26 years old. Told a friend coming up to that Christmas that he was going to be coming into money just after Christmas. He thinks around fifty dollars to $80,000. Um, two months after... Jean Bonnet, uh, after the 26th of December of, of 1996, and two days after the DA announced that they'd narrowed down their suspects, he shot himself. Oh, yes, I remember this guy. And, you remember this guy? Yeah. And a lot of people, I think on Reddit, seem to be um, attracted to this particular character as a, as, a, as a good, viable suspect, but everybody on Reddit is, I don't know about them, they're a bunch of 22-year-olds with Cheeto dust all over the... <laughs> Chin, so I don't, I don't follow their lead. Um, and I got, I, I got one more for you. This is, this is the best. This is the best one in my opinion. I mean, it's not I, I, by any means do I believe this at all. But there is a cold case detective retired. His name is John Cameron. Um, he's a big believer that Edward Wayne Edwards is responsible for many crimes, many unsolved crimes from the past. He, he, you can check him out at coldcasecameron.com and I'm not saying I'm a fan of this guy at all I'm not, I'm just like check it out just to get your mind blown like mine uh, by how ridiculous this is he, he believes that Edward Wayne Edwards was a Zodiac killer the one who killed Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia Adam Walsh uh, who else he's got here he's, he, oh, oh uh, the Atlanta child murderer uh, Jimmy Hoffa he took care of oh my God. the West Memphis uh, 3 situation <laughs> Teresa Hallbach uh, from uh, what's it, making a murderer? Which Edward Wayne Edwards has been shot. I swear, I mean, I won't keep on going, but there is more. Oh, and John Benet Ramsey, by the way, too. Oh. So John, uh, and I tried reading his book, and he is—he's a retired detective, cold case guy. Should be, you know, very reputable, and you know, maybe, maybe he is. But he thinks that Edward Wayne Edwards um, posed as the Santa Claus we spoke about with the gold glitter. Uh, Bill McReynolds, and was able to fool Jean Benet into letting him into the house using this flashlight trick that he'd used in the past um, by like flashing it into the, the her bedroom mm-hmm. and signaling, and then Jean Benet came and opened the door for him, um, and then he subsequently uh, did all those all the things that happened to Jean Benet. Yeah. Here's something that's interesting: if if this guy is right. And if Edward Wayne Edwards did this, and Edward Wayne Edwards was the Zodiac killer, then SBTC—you know how that's signed on the on the yes. on the ransom note—that stands for signed by the cross, which is how the Zodiac signed off, right? Oh, okay. Signed by the cross. Anyways, how long know, did it take him to figure out. that out? <laughs> I don't know. This guy's got insiders on insiders. He, he's unbelievable. You can take so many things and you can mold them to fit these, you know, these conspiracy theories, these other kind of theories and stuff. And one of the things I wonder, when you're talking about somebody like this guy who obviously has some credibility, he's got some experience, you know, investigating cases and things. It makes me wonder either one or two things is they somehow got so deep in the weeds with this stuff that they're like now stuck there, you know, like they can't. 
think in normal linear ways anymore, like common sense ways, like it has to be, you know, layers upon layers of, of conspiracy and, and, you know, all of these things going on in their head or that they're trying to sell books. That, that's the only oh, thing. Yeah. I can think of. <laughs> or, or even the most terrifying thought is that he's right and nobody <laughs> believes him. <laughs> and we're laughing but, but no know, for we're, sure he's we're, the idiots, we're the idiots because we're laughing at this and he totally knows what he's talking about right all of those ideas about all of these people which you can make a case for each one i would say what does any of those theories any of those ideas about who did it have to do with that ransom note you know it makes no. those two things yeah. do not match they don't match and this is where this case always comes back to me is how do you make that thing fit anything that happened or any of these other theories? And I just don't see it. Whoever wrote that thing yeah. totally yeah. screwed the pooch on this thing because oh, yeah. that was just really dumb. I mean, yes. to not leave any note, to not do anything and everything else play out the way it did you people would probably just say hey it was somebody came in and i don't know who that was it was some stranger and this is terrible and all it, all the parents would put their you know homes on lockdown for the foreseeable future but that ransom note changed the entire situation of that entire case okay so one thing i wanted to say about the, at the about the note again it's one of these things that that it's kind of hard to get away from so they did a handwriting analysis of this note and or I'll say letter. It's not even a note. It's too long to be a note. It's a letter. It's a ransom letter. And now I know that handwriting analysis, it, it's one of those things that can be debated as not really valid to prove anything or disprove anything because it's so subjective. But this one, it's hard to get away from it when you see the writing in the note and Patsy Ramsey's writing side by side is almost identical. It's almost identical. Yeah, it's pretty close. Okay, so that part, again, you could take it and you could say, you know, I really have to throw that out because handwriting analysis is just really not a science. Okay, mm -hmm. I, I'll be, I would be okay with that. But if you've ever seen the interviews that they finally did with the parents, because they didn't sit down for a formal interview with the police until four months after the murder happened because they just kept delaying and saying, speak to our lawyers and all of this. Of course, they're going to say that, oh, well, the police were looking at us right away. And so we knew we had to, we had to go into a defense mode, um, which when other people would say, hey, your child just got murdered by an intruder and you're not doing everything you can to help the police. What is that about? So, of course, you, again, you could take that either way. But here's the thing. When they finally sat down and interviewed, and I watched this thing at least three times in a row where they, they ask Patsy and then they ask John about the writing. And they show them, a, you know, a copy of the ransom note with the writing. And they ask yeah. both Patsy and John separately. Okay, you see this writing. And then they show them... Um, letters that they've taken out of stuff that Patsy has written and show them side by side and they say, do you see anything similar about that letter, that letter O or that letter T or that letter G? Okay. And we're looking at it 
on the screen and it's very similar, right? So you think that they would say something like, well, you know, it does look kind of similar, but it's a no, you know, I mean, I don't know how many ways are there to make a no, right? And that would be okay. They sit there and they say, no, I see nothing similar about those two at all, at all. Okay, that's the one thing. And it's like, okay, bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's like that mm-hmm. you, now you're you're denying too much. The second thing, which is to me was even more of a huge red flag, was then they show them a picture that is a picture of John Bonet like at a school pageant or something, and underneath is written, is printed out in like a marker. It says something, you know, players, like it's the name of the little group the kids had that they were doing this this thing, and it's written out there. And I think it has the date or something, a few words on it. And obviously, it's a picture that Patsy took, they know, because it was in her photo album, with her writing on it. Because they've seen her writing over and over, they know. And they show it to her and they say, okay, do you know this picture? First thing, do you know this picture? I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure. (laughs) And they're like, well, do you recognize anyone in the picture? They're like, she's like, and then she has to hesitate. And then she's like, well, that looks like John Bonet. It looks like John (laughs) Bonet. It is John Bonet. Yeah, really. And then they they ask, okay, and do you see the writing below it? Yes. Do you recognize that writing? Nope, not at all. Okay, that's one. Then they show her a scrapbook that she made that has pictures of the kids and her writing underneath all the pictures, like there's two pages of it. And they're showing her, and same thing. They ask her, do you recognize uh, this, you know, these pictures? Well, yeah. You know, I think maybe they asked if, you know, where did it come from or something? I don't know if she answered that directly. But then they ask again about the writing. And she says, she can't be sure if that's her writing or not. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like they are, well, obviously, it sounds like they've been coached. I feel like John's the quarterback and they're running plays. And the the goal when in doubt is to deny, deny, deny. Um, Again, if it was my my family and my daughter had been kidnapped, that's what I would tell my family. (laughs) No, but I mean, that's how you would run it. (laughs) So... Um, it really does feel like John is is the puppet master here. Even with the letter, Patsy was a performer, uh, as was John Bonet. She kind of forced her into the thing. I'm sure she enjoyed it to some degree, but I believe John Bonet was quoted as saying by by a family friend, uh, they were looking at her trophies, and she's like, "Oh, those aren't so much my trophies as they are my mom's, or something like that." Right? Right. Patsy's a she's a performer, um, and that letter. That that ransom note reeks of of like somebody who's being overdramatic. Um, also, maybe someone who's being coached by, in my opinion, John. Because there's a lot of references. It feels like a movie, you know. Like remember that Jim Clemente was talking about that on that one. Yeah, the apparently there was, was there was some of the phrasing in there that came from a couple of different, um, you know, like action movies posters. of the day or something. Yeah, so. but they he had the poster. He had the actual posters for those action movies in his house. Like oh. hanging up in his house. <laughs> so his very favorite movies just happen to be the lines from them. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's not stage. Right, it was like all. Dirty Dirty Harry. No, no, Dirty Harry was on the wall, and it was like, "P.S. You feeling lucky, punk?" You know, it was like <laughs> it, it was it was that obvious <laughs> for real. There was a few. Um, Anyways, I'm just yeah. trying to say I'm just trying to add to what you're saying there that it it, it feels like they're denying when they shouldn't. They don't even necessarily need to deny, exactly. but it feels the reason. The reason is, in my opinion, is that John is in their head, mm-hmm. and they feel a little uncomfortable there. And it's like, okay, just revert to deny, deny, deny. 
Right, exactly. And it's just too much denial, though. I mean, when you can make a simple yeah. statement and say, yeah, that that is my writing, of course, obviously, it's my it's my photo album. But it's not the same. It's not the same writing. Or maybe I don't know why it looks so simple. I mean, you could do something, a variation of that. Not everything is what somebody planted these photos in your scrapbook and planted your writing in your scrapbook. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I think I told you this, I go back and forth with the family was involved theory just because of, you know, certain, certain aspects of it, I think are just, gosh, would a parent really do that? Would a family member or a loved one really do that? And, and I know that we can go and we can say, well, yeah, we know sure. horrible things all the time to their, their families or loved ones, but it's yeah. just, it's so sometimes my brain will go that way. And it's like, you know, I, I, I don't know that I can totally buy into it. And then something like this that I, I see, and I'm like, okay, now you're just giving me more fuel to, to doubt you, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. because it, yeah. it's being ridiculous now saying that this isn't your writing when you know damn well it's your writing and everybody knows it's your writing. I think it's important to talk about all, I mean, yeah, this could go on forever, but a lot of the documentaries that I watched, um, the one with Jim, do you know what that one was called? It's it the was case called the case, Ramsey. The case, yeah, the case for Jomini Ramsey, I believe that was called, yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the more recent documentaries done, and in my opinion, the best one that was done. Mm-hmm. Um, if your listeners want to check that out, I, yeah, it's I would called the case of one. John Benet Ramsey. Yes, and there's two parts. You can get it on YouTube. But then there's a lot of people who only watch the Doctor Phil. I don't want to trash Doctor Phil. He's a good friend of mine. But I mean, he 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 just completely <laughs> sided. Like he just he's like, there's no way it could be Burt. I've talked to this family. It's mm-hmm. not Burt. I'm telling you, you know. Yeah. And and I talked to John. And, 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 and besides that, the police have never even considered them as suspects. So why am I going to suspect? Well, the court of public opinion is, is, is thinking that they might be suspects there, Phil. So maybe yeah. we could talk about it a little bit, though. Yeah. And, and, and then he's like, you know, Burke's smiling. You know, it's a nervous reaction. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't discount that as nothing. I'm like, I don't. That's weird, man. <laughs> because here's the thing that we're, we kind of are reduced to. If you're thinking that the ransom note, which most people are, thinking that the ransom note is planted, then you have to say that it had to be somebody in that house. And as far as we right. know, to this day, there was only four people in that house and all of them had the last name Ramsey. Okay, you got John, you got Patsy, yeah. you got John Bonet, and you got Burke, right? So that's why people go to that conclusion, like, well, it's gotta be somebody. And if it wasn't the parents, who else is left? Now, it's difficult yeah. to say a nine-year-old committed a murder, but I don't think that's what people are saying. From what we saw on that case of, it seemed like what they were saying is that it was probably something that happened and it was an accident that then got covered up, um, which would make right. more sense. But Definitely. I mean, you, you, you don't want to say a nine-year-old committed a murder, but you could for sure say a nine-year-old committed an accident, an accidental murder. Right. You know, right. it's... Exactly. Okay, so here was a couple of the theories. And this is... Boulder Police Department had this theory, and I think they were going with what they knew at the time, but I think that they came up with a theory that really didn't cover everything. So their their theory, and again, this was initially the Boulder Police Department's theory, was that, that Patsy was responsible. So the theory was yeah. that she accidentally killed John Bonet after a bedwetting incident. I think that was pretty much what the public was thinking early on. So I think that people thought, you know... It's possible that that could have been an accident, that she did get angry and something happened and JonBenet, you know, got seriously injured in whatever happened. But then the rest of the scene, again, they, then they staged it to look like a kidnapping. That part I could get, 
The only part that doesn't fit that for me, and you can maybe say what you think or how this could be possible, Uh is the garrote around the neck. And I'm like... I think I got it. I can see anything else. Like, she's mortally wounded, and she died um, from the skull fracture. But the fact that they find out from the autopsy that she was not dead when she was strangled, and the strangulation is what killed her. And yeah, the strangulation yeah. was caused by the garrote that was tied to a cord around her neck. And I'm like, I cannot envision any parent doing that to their child. Not that way. Right. No. Well, I mean, I'll have to lead in again with if, if I was doing these kind of things to my child. <laughs> the reason why I'm doing that is because this family sues people, you know. I know that we're, we're humongous, but you don't want to start saying that these people did these things. No. And so you know, the, way, the way that I can see it, if I was in the situation, okay, here's, here's my thing. First of all, Patsy stayed up. All, she was up all night. She, they claim, John claims that the next day that they woke up and they found this note, but she's, she's wearing her same outfit and same makeup, although touched up makeup yep. from the previous night when they went out with friends, right? Yep. So what's she doing up all night? Yeah. And that is not, that is not a typical behavior of an ex beauty queen to wear your same no. makeup and clothes in two days in a row that she, cause she told the investigators later that, Oh yeah, I got up and I just put on, um, you know, the clothes I was wearing the night before. No, I'm sorry, no. Right. <laughs> I don't buy it. No. And, and you no. did your makeup and everything before going downstairs. No. I right. Don't buy that. Yeah. I mean, unless you had a cocaine habit that I'm not aware of, but I mean that that's the only thing that causes me to wear my clothes for three or four days straight. <laughs> Maybe she had the same problem as myself. <laughs> joking. Okay. So. So when you when it comes to the to the garrote wrapped around the neck, uh, hypothetically, the only reason I can see a fam the family being able to do this to the to their daughter is if Burke did it, is if Burke was sexually abusing his his younger sister, and they've gone into some strange little kid sex game that got super out of friggin' control, which I don't believe, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just saying. And and Patsy walked in on it, and she was gone, and um, they they moved forward with it, and did what they had to do to be able to cover it up. Um, other than that, I mean, if I'm the father and I'm molesting my, my young daughter, who um, there was some indication on her vaginal area that um, there had been some chronic uh, type of abuse that had gone on. So with the grot, they had, they had the broken paintbrush, right? Right. Correct. And that was Pat's, Patsy's paintbrush. Right. They found a sliver of that in her, in her um, vagina. Right. So they believe that that was inserted, but that's what caused the damage down there. Um, if I'm, okay, if I'm John or if, if I'm John and I'm molesting my daughter, hypothetically, then I'm going to try to cover up that previous abuse that I've been doling out with adding some additional damage with mm-hmm. this stick. So okay. it looks like the only damage. Um, and if I had been doing that, then I might not have too much of an issue of going forward to doing that. So let's just say hypothetically that Burke's sitting there eating his pineapple, pineapples and milk, mm-hmm. like we they found on the table, right? And there's a, the we didn't get into that, but there's the big spoon that obviously a kid would have brought out, like a mother wouldn't have brought it, a would have brought out a regular size spoon. So I think Burke got himself a snack, mm-hmm. pineapples and milk, which is acidity and alkalinity. I mean, it's a really questionable snack. It's <laughs> tough on the stomach, but I haven't tried it. I don't suggest you do, but that's what he's eating. And let's say that Jean Bidet comes by and grabs a piece of this pineapple 
and they do find this pineapple partially digested in her, like it's it's not even into her stomach, right? Right, it's not into her stomach yet, yeah. And both parents say that she didn't have a snack before bed, that she just went straight to bed, that she was mm-hmm. sleeping when they got home, but obviously she had eaten something. So let's say this is this is a theory from the documentary that we just spoke about. And then Burke gets pissed off and smashes her over the back of the head with this flashlight that is found on the table. There's no blood spatter on the flashlight because it just caves the head in. It doesn't break the skin or anything because the skin's so elastic, and it causes her brain damage to go brain dead, pretty much. She's still alive, but she's brain dead. Right. Father comes down. The mother comes down. Oh, my God. Mom's not going to change out of her dress because they're spending the whole night uh, figuring out what to do about this to protect their son. Maybe dad, this is my hypothesis, my horrible hypothesis, that the dad um, goes through with doing all the things that are necessary to make it look like someone had come into the house and raped and murdered his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and the reason why he's comfortable with doing that, the only reason I can think of that he, if, if this is the way it went, is because he was already molesting his daughter mm-hmm. and maybe in horrible ways. And That's I didn't the only way I about- can see it. I didn't think about that as far as, you know, that as the cover up, because that was the other part of it that was difficult for me to piece together to this whole scenario was the fact that it looked like something had been inserted into her, which was, in you know, the sexual nature. And, yeah. and I thought, but why would you do that? But that I never thought of it that way. It, it would kind of put a button on that theory. Again, the, the stranger thing, there, there's problems with the family thing. There's problems with, although... And then, of course, you know, we talked about the DNA, that they found all this stranger DNA. But, of course, we know that that was touch DNA and it yeah. could have been from anything. So you can't really rule that in or out at all. Um, the other thing that I you know, have to speak to is, you know, people still say the window. You know, somebody came in through the window, which, of course, we talked about that. There was also an unidentified boot print in the basement that belonged to a, what kind of boot did they say it was? Um, yeah, I got it. I tech, got it. Tech it was, something. Uh, yeah. You know what? And the guy that I mentioned earlier, Michael uh, Helgoff, uh-huh. he had a boot. He had a boot to match that print. I guess the other thing that I heard is they said, you know, in that area, that was a really common shoe and it was a very common shoe size. Yeah. So they couldn't definitively point to any one person as having that boot. It could have been somebody who came to work in the basement. It could have been John Ramsey himself. You know, I don't know if it was the same size. Maybe it wasn't. But again, the people that will point to the intruder theory will point to that that boot print. It was called high tech. It was a high tech uh, logo on it. Okay. And the reason I know that's because because like I said, Michael uh, Helgoff had the same. He had the same boot. The one thing that we'll talk about real, real quick, because to me, this is this is something that you could, and again, this is a Lou Smith thing, I'm pretty sure, was the whole idea about the stun gun marks on, that they, he said were right. on her body. His theory was, because they found these two marks on, I believe it was on her, was it on her back or her? I think it was on her back, but I'm not entirely certain. They found two red marks that were a certain length apart, and so he put together the fact that he said that this fit like a certain type of stun gun so that somebody had probably stunned her. And th- and this is the part where I'm like, okay, throw this one out because I don't get this at all, is that he said he used that to um, subdue her. Well, from what I've seen on YouTube videos, <laughs> when you get hit with a stun gun, you like freaking scream yeah. your, your head off, right? Um, yeah, it doesn't knock you out. It doesn't knock you out. It's no, not like getting hit over that club or something. No. Yeah. And if, you know, she got hit by a stun gun, she would have screamed and you think that somebody would have heard that and it would have been like one little quick scream i think it would have been a scream scream you know i mean that was out there for a long time the stun gun marks but as soon as i heard him thinking wait a minute 
I don't think that subdues you. I think, I mean, it, it makes you not be able to, to, you know, to move, but it's also going to make you fight and scream and, you know, thrash around. So I don't think you want yeah. that with a six-year-old. Um, and I don't think you need a stun gun on a six-year-old. I think you can put, throw, you know, a hand around her mouth and pick her up. I mean, she weighs what, 50 pounds, you know? I mean. Oh, yeah. So. Be no problem. Yeah. It, so yeah, that, it'd be no problem. And I'll say, and I'll say with that too, is that, um, um, same documentary that we keep I keep mentioning. They think that it's possible. Um, there there was a toy room, a little playroom there, and they had a whole bunch of trains. And it looked like the the train tracks when they click together, or there's like um, metal rods, kind of small metal rods poking out of them. It's possible she was laid down on top of one of those, and that caused imprints into her back mm-hmm. uh, after she had been knocked out. They look like they might have matched those. So yeah, I don't I don't believe the stun gun. Uh, theory or whatever myself either because of the flailing around like you mentioned too that didn't make a whole lot of sense so one of the things that i found really really interesting um, and i don't think i literally looked at this till much later was when i really pulled up the transcripts of the 911 call um that patsy made Mm -hmm. this 911 call right after finding the ransom uh note as we said and there was a couple of things. Well, first of all, people are going to point to, and we'll talk about what was heard supposedly inadvertently at the end of the 911 call. Um, but really the 911 call itself has a lot to, I guess, kind of question or, and again, it's one of those things you hear 911 calls in all kinds of cases and people say they didn't sound very concerned, so they must have been the killer or they sounded too too concerned, so they must have been faking it you know i mean you you don't know you yeah. can't tell by somebody's demeanor on a call you don't know how you would react really if you had to make a 911 call to something like this so i don't think you can really analyze this but i think you can at least for me most of my listeners know is that i did counseling for a living and one of the things that you do is you listen to people and you listen to the way they talk you listen to the words they use and it tells you something about their mindset about how connected they are to what they're telling you and so when i saw this and it's and here's the first thing about this on one call is that it's super short it's really really short and usually if somebody i think you know you're on a 911 call and your your child is missing you're going to stay on that call until help arrives i mean most of the 911 calls i hear where there's something like this going on, or there's even, uh, you know, somebody's gotten hurt, they stay on the call and because they're waiting for the police, because you, you'll be saying things like, where are they? Where are they? I don't hear the sirens. Where are they? You know, are, are they, are they almost here? And the 911 operator has to tell them over and over again, yes, yes, they're on their way. They're on their way. They're on their way. Um, and this one is super short before she hangs up. So that was the first thing that really struck my attention. It's also the very first things that go on when um, she calls 911. The first thing she does is give the address, just straight out give the address, which makes sense because you're trying to get help there. So you're going to give the address. And then the 911 operator asks, what is going on there, ma'am? And she says, we have a kidnapping. Hurry, please. Yes. Now, that right there, (laughs) we have a kidnapping. I mean, again... Who knows what words you would use, but this just seems very disconnected. Rehearsed. Well, yeah, it seems disconnected. It also feels like a performance. Once again, with Patsy, um, she's a performer. It completely feels like a performance to me. So she says, we have a kidnapping. Hurry, please. Okay. I just think that you're the mother. This you know, little child is missing. Your child is missing. 
you would say, my daughter's missing, my daughter's been kidnapped, my baby's gone, you know, something like that, instead of we have a kidnapping. It just seems very disconnected. And then she asked her, explain what's going on. She starts to say the same thing again. We have a, and then she stops and she says, there's a note left and our daughter is gone. I think you said it well, like you're setting the scene in a way, not saying what you need to say to get help there immediately. She's saying kidnapping, there's a note. To this point, she has not said her daughter's name. She has not described her. She has not said her age. She's given no information about who's gone except for, she finally says, our daughter's gone. She's At the beginning, she doesn't even say our daughter. She says, we have a kidnapping. Who? Who's kidnapped? It could be an adult? We don't know. Yeah, I know. Right? The way that I took it, uh, Esther, is, is like um, the the emotion and the the wildness in her voice doesn't match what she's saying. If right. you say everything that she said in a deadpan tone, it still yeah. makes sense. Right. But when you when you're freaking out and you're in that situation, you say all kinds of things, and she it's very it feels very prepared. It feels yeah. like she's hitting points. It feels like she's been prepped once again. Like I'll say again, it feels like she's been prepped by somebody, yeah. and she's trying to hit the certain points. And when she's done the performance. Guess what? She's done. She's she done. Up. Yeah, she hangs right. up. Yeah. Because then she asks, she says, a note was left and your daughter is gone. She says, yes. And again, mm-hmm. one word answer. You know, I think you'd be like running out yeah. of the mouth trying to give all this information as quickly as possible. Then they ask, how old yeah. is your daughter? Because, you know, she could be 25. They don't have any idea, right? She says, she is six mm-hmm. years old. Again, still has not said her name. I don't think she ever says her name. Right. She says, she is six no, years she old. Doesn't. She is blonde. Six years old. She is blonde. That's the most blonde. pertinent information. <laughs> Not, yeah. you know, she was in her room. We haven't seen her. And then she goes into it. How long ago was this? She says, I don't know. Just found a note, a note, and my daughter is missing. Again, repeating what she already said. Does it say who took yeah. her? What? Does it say who took her? She said, no, I don't know. It's there. There's a ransom note here. She keeps talking about the note, the note, the note, the note, the note, right? Now, I can see maybe being fixated. I think you'd be more fixated on where is my daughter? And then she says, it says SBTC victory, please. She talks about what it says at the end of the note, which later on, she says that she did not read the entire note. She barely saw the beginning and then called 911. But then she's telling you what it says at the end. So that didn't arrive either. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is the one I think that first stood out to me the most. She said, okay, what's your name? Are you? And then she says, Patsy Ramsey. I am the mother. The, I, it's, again, so disconnected. I am the mother. Not. Well, it sounds like, you know, it almost sounds like she's the one doing the ransom note now. You know, that's like something you would say if you had, if you had somebody. It's like, I am the mother, you know, or I am, I am the man who took, who took the child. It sounds like she's doing a ransom call. Herself. Yeah, yeah. It, because it's a performance. Like again, it's a performance, right? It, it doesn't ring true. No, it doesn't ring true. I am the mother. I don't think anybody would say it that way. You know, I'm her mother. Nothing. Again, disconnected. Oh, Not I'm her mother. My, my baby. No, nothing like that. So then she says she's sending an officer. Do you know? And she just keeps saying, please, 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 please send somebody. Please send somebody. She says that over and over. Do you know how long she's been gone? No, I don't. We just got up and she's not here. God, please send somebody. Please send somebody. She's reassuring her. I am honey. I am honey. She says, please. And then she takes a deep breath and then you don't hear anything. And she says, hurry, hurry, hurry. Um, and then the 911 operator, she, well, we say hangs up, but doesn't hang up. Right. <laughs> um, right. Because she's just saying, you know, Patsy, Patsy trying to get her on the phone, but she's not on the phone. 
But then again, we know that she didn't hang up the phone. She thought she hung up the phone. Apparently, this is this is what was found, you know, later on from two things. One was there was an enhanced audio that was um, later done of the 911 call. And there was also not until that Jim Clemente special from when I what I gathered, um, they had not talked to the 911 operator. She had never been interviewed. At least that's what she said. No. And yeah. she, she said right. that, what was the first thing that she said that she heard? I think that she was recalling the tone of what she felt that she was, she was hearing because it had mm-hmm. been so long. She hadn't heard it. She hadn't heard it to that point either. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I definitely took off of her was, was that she, she was spooked by the fact that this woman had been so um, out of her mind and goes to hang up the phone supposedly because she's still out of her mind and then she can hear her talking calmly and whatever it is, it was more the tone switch yeah. because you think if she, if she was talking in that frantic manner, it, what you would hear if she failed to hang up the phone was her yelling at her husband or yelling at her kid, uh, yelling at Burke or yell, yelling at everybody, you know, mm-hmm. like that we got to do something or, or whatever it is. Instead, it's like, she's kind of just whispering to herself, like thankful that it's over. I think, uh, but no, to answer your question, I don't know. Yeah, and I remember something, uh, reading something about, it was something like, Jesus help me, or something like that. Oh, yeah. And then I read in a couple of different accounts, but I again, I, I didn't hear it myself, so I can't say for sure. A little ways away from the phone, so it's not as, as audible, but saying something like, okay, we called the police, now what? And um, Oh, yeah. What Jim Clemente on that that uh, episode on the uh, documentary, what they think that they hear. And I got to say, the only reason why I heard what they said that they heard is because they kind of, they put the, um, the words they, over it. They feed it. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like watching like, you know, one of those ghost shows <laughs> and they say, you know, it's like, I'm in the house, you know, it's like, oh, it's a, oh, 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 I said, I'm in the house. And then it shows it along the bottom. You're like, oh yeah, totally. Oh my God. Freaking ghosts are real. But the, the, uh, <laughs> The situation here was uh, you can hear you can hear Burke, what sounds maybe like a kid, right? Or sorry, you, you hear the you hear the husband, possibly John, say, "We're not talking to you." Mm-hmm. And then you hear Burke say, "What where what did happen or something?" Was, yeah, what did you find? What, what did happen? What yeah. did you find? Sorry, right. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Even if we get the words wrong, like let's say that you know, like you said, it's not completely crystal clear. So I think they are kind of trying to determine what they think they hear to the best of their ability, right? So we can say, okay, that might be what they said. It might not be what they said. But here's the thing. I think of either way, they said over and over and up until, you know, the end, even now, that Brooke was not awake at all when they called 911. Actually, they had to wake him up after the police came and then somebody took him to the neighbor's house. He was not awake. He didn't hear anything. He didn't see anything. He doesn't know anything. He can't tell you anything. And because he was asleep. But they hear a child's voice on the end of that 911 call. Now, I don't think you can, you can't mistake Patsy's voice for a child's voice because you have her voice also on that call. So you know the difference. And it's not going to be John. John's not going to sound like a child. He's a full grown man. So they knew that that was a child's voice and the only child in that house supposedly that was, you know, there at the time was Burke. So again, it's one of those things that they're denying this. Why? And that's where you get this idea that 
it's a cover-up. There's something happening here. We don't know exactly what, but something's being covered up because why are they lying about Burke being awake? Yes, and the tone, the tone. if you want to believe that, that that's the family there that you hear in those six to eight seconds, whatever it is, when she thinks she's hung up the phone, the tone certainly, and I believe that you're hearing that all three of their voices there, the tone is like, what do we do next? And it's like the, the kid says something and the father's like, shut up, man. We're not, we're not talking to you. You've caused enough problem here. And the wife's like, kind of like, oh, Jesus, I did it. You know, okay. And, that, and then John's trying to figure out what, what to do next. Um, in my opinion, that's how it sounds. John actually goes out and he uh, calls his, his pilot and makes plans to leave town. back home. They're, they're from, right? Yeah. yeah, to leave town. Uh, they, they did have Christmas plans to go see his, his older children. Um, right. But you, you think it would be one of the last things he's talking about. And what it does feel like, is he's trying to get Burke out of the house. And yeah. he does, in fact, achieve that with getting one of his friends to take uh, Burke out of the house at some point. He's right. in control. John's in control of the crime scene. Yeah, he, totally. Well, he's the one that found the body. Obviously, he's oh, in yeah. the crime scene. Um, and the fact that like he messed up the... Because he didn't call people, right? You know, like, okay, you find your daughter down there. I can kind of understand that there's there's a a reflex to want to get her to help. But I also think that, I think people just have this, this idea because movies, television, whatever, is that you don't move somebody, you know, when they're, you, know, no. wounded. you don't move them because you don't know what if she has a broken neck or, you know, you don't know. And she's got a uh-huh. cord around her neck. So what if she has a broken neck? You don't want to move her. Right. So, right. but he does, he picks her up and takes her all the way upstairs and places right. her on the floor. Which, like yeah. you said, yeah. another way to to mess up the crime scene um, and any yeah. evidence that Seems might be like there, that. right? Right. And there was also a moment, well, before before they decided to start searching the house, um, where John was what they call it out of pocket for like an hour and a half. They didn't know where he was. Mm-hmm. So the officer, the detective that was there, lost complete control of the scene. And then when they said that they're going to search the house top to bottom, they said top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, John was right downstairs. And the uh, one of the detectives is alongside with them, and they claim that John says, "Oh my God, here she is!" Something along those lines before he even turns on the light to that room. He goes straight to the basement. Now, yeah, that, like a bloodhead. You would think he would start at her room, or the the, the floor where she's sure. speaking from. You know, or maybe go outside and look at all the doors. You know, from the outside, is there Whoa. anything that I can see? Somebody walking around outside, or how do they get in? I don't yeah. think your first instinct would be to go straight to the basement. It just seems odd. And the hour, the hour and a half of these out of pocket. I mean, if if I'm the dad, I'm I'm search. I've searched the whole house already, even before the cops get there. I mean, the entire house. Right. I'm looking everywhere. You know, are are we are are they is someone playing a joke on me? Mm-hmm. You know, is is my wife playing a joke on me? Even mm-hmm. you know, it kind of looks like her handwriting. Yeah. So <laughs> it's. So like so so here's here's kind of the the wrap up of the theories and the clues that because we're not saying that we advocate for any of these because we don't know I mean it's still an unsolved in my mind it's still an unsolved case I would love to know everybody always asks when they ask questions of me they'll say what's the one case that you would like to see solved this is the one I'd like to see solved I would like to know definitively what happened to this poor little girl yeah. you know and um, somebody to be held accountable whether they're alive or dead. Um, you know, to just be, yeah. we know this, that this was the, this was the perpetrator. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy, but there's, there's so many things that point to one way and then, it, and then another, um, there's definitely more 
I believe, to an inside job than an intruder. But there are some things that we you know we pointed out as far as an intruder theory that that we can't say for sure that we know either way that it wasn't. Um, so if we're talking about Patsy's involvement, we're going to talk about the 911 call, which we talked about, um, that it just seems a little scripted. It just doesn't, seems a little off. Um, of course, it's subjective. The ransom note for sure, because it's the materials from her house, are t it's more than likely her handwriting. Um, they've done a, a linguistic analysis on it. You know, FBI's done it and said it's seems to be written from a female, not a male. I mean, lots of things, like you said, that then the amount of money in it, the the words that are used that go directly to movies, favorite movies of John Ramsey's, all of this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fingerprints on the pineapple bowl. She said she didn't feed her any pineapple. She didn't feed her anything that night. And uh, John, uh, Patsy Ramsey's fingerprints are on that pineapple bowl. Now we can say, okay, she put the, the, the bowls away, but hers were the only fingerprints on the pineapple bowl. Was John Bonet wearing gloves when she got the pineapple? I mean, you know, how, how do we how do we say that's not? And you know, and again, she could have just said yes. I gave her pineapple when we got home. You know, and then she went to bed. That would have just covered yeah. that. You know, but she's, yeah. she's adamant. Burke, uh, sorry. Good. Yeah, she's adamant about that. She is, and I think Burke's Burke's fingerprints are on it too. So. Yeah, um, his fingerprints were on yeah, the glass that, next to it. Yeah, his fingerprints were on the yeah, glass the that she said thing. that she didn't give him either. He said that she didn't, she she knew nothing about that whole snack. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is wild. And we, I know we're, I know we're 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 going after Patsy right now a little bit, but but Burke as well. Uh, you know how you were talking about there that well, you're talking about it now as well, where Patsy will deny, deny, deny in situations where she doesn't particularly need to deny. Mm -hmm. um, Burke did the same thing. When Burke was uh, being interviewed, they show him a picture of the pineapples and milk, and there's the tea sitting there. I think it was iced tea, right? Like a glass of green tea. Yeah, it was like a tea bag like inside of a glass. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. So did you see this part when they're showing him the, the photo? And no, Burke I didn't. Won't? Yeah. Mm -mm. Okay, well, he's like, I see tea. And they're like, okay, you see anything else? And he's like, he won't say pineapple. He won't say that he sees pineapple, even though it's right there, and he was eating pineapple, which leads people to believe, you know, oh, something bad happened around the pineapple, and, dad, you know, in my opinion, Dad's told him not to talk about the friggin' pineapple, so he, like, kind of shuts down mm -hmm. when it comes to something that could relate directly to how things actually went went down. Yeah, I think, I think your answers, a lot of the answers come from every time they deny when it seems unnecessary. That, yes. is, that is where you really need to look. Yes, exactly. When you don't need to deny it and you're still denying it, then that tells you something else. Um, yeah, because he could yeah. have said, yeah, it looks like pineapple. And I've heard that it was pineapple, so it's, I guess it's pineapple, but I don't know anything about it. That would be the end of that, right? Like, yes, you know, of course. He was, he was eating pineapple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's your bowl um, of pineapple. Like we said, she was wearing the same clothes, so it seems like she was up all night. She said that no one woke up that night. She, you know, again, adamantly denying that the kids were up at all, that she hadn't fed Jamine any food, um, which we know she had eaten something. The interviews afterwards are really weird if you watch those of, of, of Patsy. She seems either drugged or defiant on all of these interviews. Very defiant. Like, she just will not give an inch She's so ticked off to have to answer any questions. You can say, okay, because she feels like they're looking at her as a suspect. I guess you could get that attitude. But I think when you want to give them everything you can to show them, look, dude, there's no way I did this. I want to help you find who did this. This was my baby. 
you know, but this isn't happening. She's completely in 100% defense mode the whole time. And yeah. so there, yeah. there's nothing else there. Um, the voice on the 911 call we talked about and that there was no evidence of forced entry according to police that they saw. John's involvement, we can talk about, um, again, the voice at the end of the 911 call. He's the one that finds and moves the body. Yeah, like you said, he makes plans to fly out to Atlanta, like within an hour or so of the body being, you know, of his daughter being found murdered. And uh, the police heard that and they're like, uh, dude, you can't leave town. We're uh, conducting an investigation right. here. He's like, well, I have a, I have a business meeting. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. he was supposed to go to, to Michigan to see his family. He wasn't planning to go to Atlanta. Now they're going to Atlanta all of a sudden, but he's got a private jet. You can go okay. wherever he wants. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Private jet. How much, how much does that cost? That's what I was. <laughs> oh, he had a lot of money. He had more how than $118,000. That. $118,000. I was nothing like, to this guy. He says bonus. Yeah. How much scratch you have to have to have a, a private friggin' jet? Oh my God. And a pilot. You got a lot. Yeah. A lot. You got to have a lot. Mm-hmm. Also that he was uncooperated with the investigation. Like I said, it took four months till they would consent to sitting down for formal interviews and it really had to be forced upon them. Yeah, Burke, Burke, I was going to say, um, as you're going through there, I just, you reminded me of something. Um, I don't know how to say this without sounding like I'm going to make you laugh or something, but Burke took that grapefruit-sized dump in uh, Jean Bonnet's bed. Remember that? No. Remember that? I believe it was one of the um, uh, one of the maids or something, but they, they came across that Burke had taken a dump in Jean Bonnet's room, and they said it was the size of a grapefruit, um, which would indicate that there's some kind of issue between Burke and uh, Jean Benet that Burke bit. had a problem with her yeah yeah I was going to talk also, about I was going to talk about that jealousy theory um because some people you know point to this yeah. and say well you know maybe he was jealous and maybe something happened um because they said okay he was the firstborn of of well of Patsy and John anyway um of Patsy um and you know John Benet is is the younger of course the baby of the family Plus, she's getting a ton of, of, of time and attention from Patsy because of all of these beauty pageant things. Of course, because Patsy, you know, she went was in beauty pageants when she was a teenager and, you know, one went Miss West Virginia or Virginia or something and, you know, wanted her daughter to follow in those footsteps. So she spent a lot of time, you know, they traveled, they went to all these things, they went shopping for all her outfits, they, you know, dance classes. And they said, well, you know, Burke maybe was resentful of that because he wasn't getting as much attention from his mother. So there is there was that. And there was also another story about him hitting her with a golf club. Right. At another time where I think that the neighbor or the housekeeper somebody said it seemed like maybe not an accident. Like he got angry and hit her with with this golf club and I think she had to didn't she end up having taken her for like she some did. kind she of plastic plastic surgery for the scar. She did. Yeah. yeah. Yes, he hit her in the face, and it caused a scar on her face. Um, so th- there's there's a kind of a connection there that we can we can make based on what somebody said, and that's one of the one of the landscapers. He said that Burke was always kind of like introverted, um, not that friendly, um, but Jean Benet was always super friendly, right, and very personable. Everybody said this about Jean Benet. I mean. From uh, local pedophiles to uh, just Santa <laughs> Claus, who got hired to come, like they, they all, they, they loved her. Like men, it seems from everything I'm, I'm gathering, she would be the type of little girl um, who would really 
uh, charm a woman or 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 an older man because um, she was maybe more mature and she was um, you know emotionally secure by the sounds of things. Mm-hmm. Burke not so much. So that could indicate to, that you know um, maybe John Bonet was better at getting attention and Burke would have uh, reason to express himself by I don't know taking a grapefruit sized dump in her room. I ca- I can't get over that a grapefruit. He's nine. But that's 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 the information that we have here. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, there's always going to be sibling rivalry, sibling jealousy. There's one last thing. So about Burke is that they did interview him. So what happened was, and and this, I didn't put all these pieces together until recently when I went back and read all these things and looked up some stuff when they actually interviewed Burke and why they interviewed Burke before they even interviewed the parents. It was because here's a you know here's this, this little girl that gets murdered in her home, and of course they've got to look at the parents for this because it's in her home. Um, the Department of Social Services has to do an interview with the remaining you know living child to make sure that he's safe. They didn't take him out of their custody or anything like that, but they wanted to make sure that like there wasn't something going on and now this kid was going to be in danger. So they had uh, the DSS do an interview with him. And it's a very interesting interview. You can listen to audio. I think some of it was on, I don't think it was Dr. Phil. I think it might have been the other one, the case of, I don't know if it was video or just audio. I can't remember, but I, I do. There's some video. There's some video. Yeah. There's okay. some video. I don't think they came out till later. I would tell people to go watch it because it's, it's very interesting. Um, he doesn't, pretty much he comes across as a normal kid in, in most ways, but he does seem very disconnected from his family. Like he doesn't seem, and I don't know if this is just how he is, he's just a quirky kid, or if there's something, um, like some people have alluded to, well, maybe he was on the spectrum or something. Uh, I can't, you know, say that because he's, I don't think he was ever diagnosed with anything like that. No. But I think they're just going, going, yeah, I think they're just going by his demeanor, like people just kind of speculating about that. But there's times when they're asking, and again, it also could be, you're a nine-year-old kid, this is all very, um, strange and you know even maybe upsetting so maybe you kind of shut down and you don't want to talk about it but he seems to be okay talking about certain things even the most the things that would really bother you the most he's okay talking about like when they ask about what do you you know what happened to your sister I, i think he says yes or he thinks so or something like that and then they say well what do you think happened and I think he says something why probably somebody came and hit her or stabbed her or something but he does a motion with his hand over his head that kind of like oh, yeah. swinging down over he makes a motion with his arm and his hand like he has something in his hand and he swings it down and they said yeah, that was yeah. really weird because that was they're thinking is he mimicking the skull fracture how that happened like and what how would yeah. he know this because nobody had said anything about the skull fracture as far as they said, well, he might have heard. Maybe the parents were talking. Your parents going to talk about that in front of you? I'm like, it's kind of bad if you do. No. You know, um, yeah, but they were other, trying to protect them, it seems. But other things, they, you know, they would ask him simple things, like you said, and he would either not talk about it or he would. They started asking him about, um, I think, about touching or inappropriate touching or something like that. And he got very uncomfortable about that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so they said, and they, they kind of equated it like some kids, when you ask them about that, if they're, they don't know what you're talking about, like they'll kind of try to make up something because they don't know what you mean. But he said he started putting things in front of his face like he was hiding. So it's really interesting to watch. But the part that they thought was most kind of strange was when he did that mimicking the hitting somebody 
like overhand with something in your hand. Yeah. And I think yeah, he said, it freaked me out a bit when I saw him do it. Yeah. I mean, it did did look it did look like he was repeating a. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I've, I've, I've worked like you, it's funny you mentioned the spectrum. Like I've worked with a lot of kids on, on you know, with uh, Asperger's autism, my son's on the spectrum and, and with, with him, I was, I was picking up stuff that I recognized. I mean, we're not, we don't need to go there yet. Like you said, he hasn't been diagnosed, but what I recognize with my son or other kids that I've worked with who behave like that say, um, Burke does when it's safe, he speeds up. Mm-hmm. And when it's dangerous, he slows down. It's that simple, in my opinion. And that's what it felt like to me. It's like when they're getting closer to territory that his dad, in my opinion, might have warned him about, he slows mm-hmm. right down. He's like, mm-hmm. okay, I got to think. I got I to, I got I can't just blurt everything out because normally he, this is the type of kid who just blurts everything out. You can mm-hmm. tell with him. Oh. And then he, he slows down, right, which is unnatural. So I found that very interesting. But that, But the striking motion you're speaking about, that came out like a blurt, like he blurted it out. He didn't think first. Freaky. Yeah. He didn't think first. No, it just came out. Again, those are the things that people point to when they when they have these theories about what may have happened. Of course, again, we don't know. Um, but here here's the other Mm -hmm. thing. When they finally asked the parents what did they think happened or trying to get information from them, they started pointing to all kinds of other people as possibilities yeah. and even their own friends. I mean, if these are your friends, yeah. why are you, and you, you think, Oh, that's possible. They could do this. Why are they, you taking your kids to their house? I um, know. Yeah. yeah. It's like muddying the water is what it came across to me again. I'm, I'm just, I mean, it felt like they're just muddying the water. Patsy said the housekeeper who had been there for quite a while, she told the police, well, she was acting weird and I know she needed money. Um, I'm like, wow, yeah. you to throw your housekeeper under the bus. <laughs> Really? I think she asked her for money, though. She asked her for two grand or something, right? So she, she points at her. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. they started pointing pointing at everybody. And, yeah, and that's a natural thing to do. Employees. You know. um, oh, the one I thought that was the worst. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them that they pointed to, to be honest. I mean, I found a whole list of one. But one I thought yeah. was, was the most sad was his friend Fleet White. That was the one, the first one they asked to come over, the one that he took with him to, when he went to search the house. And then he was saying, oh, well, I don't even remember exactly why he said, but that guy had a lot of heat put on him for a while. Patsy also pointed to his wife as a possible suspect. So, and I, they were well, yeah. one of their closest friends. What bothers me about that, uh, what you're saying there as well, is that when she was on the phone, so they're showing, they're showing that they have this suspicious uh, way about them, that they're willing to throw the people around the, under the bus for the sake of trying to find out their, who their daughter's killer is, supposedly. But when she's on the phone, she's not giving any ideas to who could have possibly done this. Like, I mean, if she's, th- if she's capable of doing that, you think on the phone, she's like, what if it's Fleet? Maybe it's Fleet, or maybe it was this, or maybe it was that. You, you would be throwing ideas. That, I know if I, my son, one of my sons went missing, yeah. I'd be knocking on every door in my entire neighborhood. And if right. someone looked at me funny, I'd barge in my way in. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with it later, right? But I'm going to make sure he's not, you know, he's not eating pineapples and milk in the basement or something, you know? And this, this has been dramatized in, like, a movie of the week and stuff, but it, it actually happened. Uh, one of the things is when... That whole morning when they're waiting for the kidnappers to call, John and Patsy are not in the same room ever. She's in another room with with the neighbors or friends or whoever, just kind of sitting and um, like, I don't know, just, I mean, I can understand being distraught, but she's just sitting in there. He's ultimately, you know, searching the house and doing other things and calling for his private jet or whatever. 
but he's, you know, he's doing these different things. When he's bringing JonBenet's body upstairs, Fleet White is going ahead of him and he's yelling out, call an ambulance, call a 911, call an ambulance. Right, yeah. Patsy does not come. She's not move. Now, you've been waiting to hear where your daughter is all this time, and you now you know, you know they're saying, call an ambulance. Even if you don't know exactly what's happening, once you go flying over there to see if they found her, she never gets up. So anyway, we know the charges of the outcome here. Um, the grand jury convened in 1998, this is two years later, to hear testimony of John and Patsy Ramsey's involvement in her murder. So they finally convened a grand jury to hear this testimony. In 1999, the grand jury returned a true bill to charge the, the Ramseys with, quote, placing the child at risk, which led to her death, unquote, and obstruction of justice. But the Boulder County DA, Alex Hunter, decided not to prosecute the Ramseys, saying that the evidence was insufficient, insufficient for prosecution. And this is what was strange about this, is the public did not learn of the grand jury's indictment of the Ramseys until 2013. You know, they basically said, hey, you have enough here to go to court to charge these people with something. They didn't say murder. They said placing the child at risk, which led to her death. Now, you can interpret that a lot of different ways, you know, um, and obstruction of justice, which is probably, you know, staging whatever they did um, or just obstructing, you know, the detectives to to um, investigate. But the DA just said, nope, I'm not going to prosecute. And um, nobody knew about that. That true bill was was returned until 2000, many, many years later. The next uh, DA in Boulder, her name was Mary Lacey. She took over the investigation in 2002. In 2003, she announced that, in her opinion, the murder of John Bonet was more consistent with an intruder theory. So again, just putting another nail in the in the case and saying, you know, we're nothing to see here. Um, in 2008, yeah. the Boulder's D, the Boulder DA's office stated the results of new DNA testing excluded the Ramsey family as suspects. Mary Lacey then publicly exonerated them and apologized publicly to them. I remember that thinking, what the, <laughs> really? Yeah. That was something that people were just like, you're kidding me, right? That you're apologizing to them? Um, in 2010, the case was reopened and new interviews were conducted, but no new evidence was uncovered in those interviews. In 2016, the Boulder Chief of Police came out saying that the case is still considered to be an active homicide case. So it's not, it's not solved. It's still active. It's not closed. Then the Boulder Police Chief and investigators, um, I guess to this day, have disagreed with Mary Lacey's exoneration of the Ramseys. And uh, the police chief was, was quoted as saying, quote, to clear someone just on the premise of touch DNA, especially when you have a situation where the crime scene wasn't secure at the beginning, really is a stretch, unquote. I would think that she would just say, look, it's open. We don't know. You know, we don't know. Until we get more information, we can't um, indict anybody. But to say, oh, we're yeah. exonerating them, that's a whole different thing. I For mean, sure. It's gross. You know, everybody's got their got their heads in there. You know, they're doing face palms over this whole situation. And then, it just gets older, though. The case gets older and older, and then you come to a point. It's why it's important for podcasts like this, I think, is because uh, it is important not to forget what happened here. Obviously, uh, well, we don't know what happened. Yeah. But we can kind of assume. To me, it feels like there's been like, these people have been influenced by by a man who has a, has a bunch of money in their neighborhood. Um, but here's and, the thing. Uh, this, you guy know, has a bu- this guy has a bunch of money. Did he put a ton of money into getting a private detective and trying to solve this? I don't, I don't know. 
I don't remember hearing anything about that. I mean, it's possible, but I don't remember hearing anything about it. Yeah, you would think that you have that kind of money. Your daughter is brutally murdered. You would, you know, spend every last penny to try to find out who, who murdered her. So I hope you enjoyed our discussion of this case. It was a little different from what you usually get on Once Upon a Crime, as well as what you'll hear on Crime Machine. But Jack will also be covering the John Benet Ramsey story in his own special way on Crime Machine. And trust me, it'll be something you probably never heard before because it'll be told in the Jack Luna style that I love. So tell them what's coming up there on Crime Machine, Jack. Well, with Crime Machine... I, I first I like to say I don't fabricate anything on my podcast. It might sound like I do when I say what I'm about to say, but I do. I pick a moment in crime. Um, so with the, the day Ramsey case, I said it earlier. I'd probably go to the with how many people came over to the house, and uh, maybe follow John downstairs. How he immediately goes and finds his daughter's body. Something we didn't mention today was that uh, she was placed underneath the Christmas tree at some point, which was a really powerful situation. I'm sure that will come up in my. Uh, episode I do on Crime Machine, but thank you, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about talk about my podcast and, and come on here and share stuff with you. I'm sure people will uh, maybe enjoy it. Uh, this more from my previous podcast, Dark Topic, into Crime Machine. Um, so I think some people, when they get hit in the face of the Crime Machine, they're like, "What is going on here?" Uh, but basically, I'm kind of time traveling back to a moment in crime and really fleshing it out to to look at it underneath a microscope. It's well produced. The Dark Topic episodes, and you can also now get if you subscribe to mm-hmm. Crime Machine, correct? Yes, we push them all together. So when you search Crime Machine, you'll get the you know that podcast, and then there'll be like archived what the previous podcast was, which was Dark, which was Dark Topic, about 30, 35 or so episodes mm-hmm. there. What I can say, what I can tell listeners is that, well, first of all, you want to subscribe because there's, like you said, over thirty episodes of Dark Topic, and at least three now of uh, Crime Machine on that feed. Um, and I know you guys are going to be looking for something to listen to because as you know, I'm going on a little bit of a break. I'll be gone Christmas week and new year's week. And I'm actually for the very first time in um, now three and a half, over three and a half years of putting out a weekly um, episode on once upon a crime, taking a little bit of an extended vacation, I guess you'd call it a little break. It's only not a vacation. I'm still be working, but I'm not going to be putting out another episode until January 20th. Um, that will give me a chance to, do some additional research, things that I, I never have time to do um, and to work on some other things ahead so that I can bank some episodes and also to be able to put more on Patreon. As you know, Jack, it's always hard to balance the time when you're trying to do put things out on a consistent schedule with the, the podcast and then all these other side things yep. that you have to get done as well. So that can be a little bit difficult. So rather than burning out and taking off six months, <laughs> I decided to <laughs> give myself a little bit of a break during the holidays. Um, but I know, like I said, people are going to be looking for other things to listen to because they won't be having a new episode of Once Upon a Crime for a couple of weeks here. So I definitely recommend going and subscribing to Crime Machine. One of the things that I can say that I really like about what Jack does is um, I love his the way he tells the story. In, and I've, I've said this to other people, Jack, um, is that I am jealous of you in a good way because the way that you write things is so good. It's like it brings you into the story. It really brings you in. Where I feel like I'm telling the story from kind of more of a 
an analytical perspective in a way, although I'm still trying to give you guys, you know, a little bit of a connection to it um, personally, but not as much as I think, like you said, going into it. So that's what I appreciate about Crime Machine is because you're taking that one, like you said, moment in crime and really bringing us into that with you. And you do an amazing job. I just love that because, you know, I'm a person that really appreciates somebody who can craft the story um, and you, you really do that. So yeah, I definitely recommend it. So make sure to go now while you're listening to me right now and subscribe to crime machine. Um, And I, like I said, you get all the dark topic episodes there as well. So I want to thank you again uh, once more, Jack, for joining me today. It was really fun talking to you. um, And I hope we can do this another time. Me too. I, I had a lot of fun, Esther. I love your podcast. I love your personality. Uh, I feel like I got to say a whole bunch of nice things about you, but I've said them to you too off the off the podcast. But but you're great. I don't know how you how you do it, how you make everybody like you, but you're still actually likable in real life too. It's a real skill. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest Jack Luna for being on the show. Check out Crime Machine on your favorite podcast app to hear more true crime from Jack. I had so much fun talking to Jack that our recording of this episode went pretty long. So long, in fact, that I cut it down to a more manageable length. If you'd like to hear the entire uncut version of the episode, you can listen to that on Patreon. You get to hear some additional comments, side conversations, and even flubs in the Patreon episode. To become a Patreon member, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Once Upon a Crime is now a Stitcher Premium podcast. If you're a Stitcher Premium member, you can get Once Upon a Crime episodes ad-free. If you're not a Stitcher Premium member, but would like to join to get bonus content and ad-free shows from your favorite podcasts, including True Crime Garage, My Favorite Murder, and so many more, sign up at stitcher.com. And if you use my discount code, Once Upon a Crime, you'll get one month free. You'll get over 21,000 hours of premium podcasts, bonus episodes, and more for just $4.99 per month. But don't forget to use discount code, Once Upon a Crime, for your first month free. All new episodes of Once Upon a Crime can be heard ad-free on Stitcher Premium now, and most of our back catalog as well. We're in the process of adding the entire back catalog to Stitcher Premium right now. I wish you all a wonderful holiday season and a very happy new year. I'll be back with more episodes on January 20th, 2020. Hey, I didn't even plan that. Until then, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.